0: Let's move further into step 10 now. If you take a look at the, uh, some of you have this throwaway. I printed uh, up a, um, uh, uh, some people might appreciate this, and some people might have absolutely no use for it. Uh, I just wanted to share with you at the beginning of my morning regimen of prayer. I say, I am powerless. My life is unmanageable. I know that you will restore me to sanity. I turn my will and my life over to you. That's the first three steps. And then I say the third step prayer. And then I say the seventh step prayer. And if there are things that we're a friend of mine uh, and I before we're talking about repeating the same kinds of behavior over and over again, repeating the same kind of resentments coming up. And what I like to do is, let's say I have, you know, I have a problem with my boss and and, and and there's certain defects on that that appear every time that I'm self-centered, I have unreasonable expectations, I have fear of confrontation, self-pity, self-centered. He treats everybody like crap, not just me. Whatever the thing is, that when I say my seventh step prayer in the morning, I can have a little extra time with my higher power and say, you know what, I'm going to go in, I'm going to see him this morning. What should I do? I need to get rid of the self-centeredness in this area. What should I do? And Sometimes the inner voice would say, "Stay away from him." Sometimes the inner voice would say, "Go in and make him coffee." There's no hard and fast rules about it. I talked briefly before about that kind of spirit in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you study the, the history of AA, one thing is really clear: there was no body was saying this is the way it gets done. These guys were wackos. They would drop Bill was dropping acid. I mean, repass it on. There's a whole paragraph. As a matter of fact, he dropped so much acid that some guys had to go, "Bill, stop. You're playing with a headless doll under a black light. Stop it already." He started eating niacin and like preaching niacin. I mean, they, they, they would stay up at night and play with a Ouija board. My point here is that they were real seekers. And the people that I've hung out with and get most from in AA are seekers and people who stay spiritually pliant and inclusive. And because of that, I've been, uh, my sponsors have had an opportunity to grow me up spiritually. And it's really been wonderful. And then uh, what I did was is I went through uh, the section on Step 11 in Chapter 6 and I sort of made a list of all the things that I'm kind of instructed to ask God for. Father, please direct my thinking today. Show me all through the day what my next step is to be. Give me whatever I might need to overcome such difficulties. Please keep my thoughts especially divorced from selfish, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Please keep me from self-will and self-pity. Hold me close to you. Reveal your work to me and give me the power to carry it out. Hold me close to you and keep me sober just for today so that I better do that will. That will be done on mine. And now I I open up to God to ask what's in store, discuss what's current, pray openly and honestly, have a real, breathing, living relationship with my higher power so that in all matters I can turn to the Father of light who presides over all. It's a wonderful quote that I just love. I'm going to jump forward two sheets ahead. It's in huge print. And it was an expression from a, a spiritual teacher uh, that just captured me, and I wanted to share it with you. Because if I don't do that morning dedication, if I don't do the 10th step, if I don't allow that to bridge me over to the 12th step, this is such a beautiful expression of what happens when people walk away from AA. God does not die on the day that I cease to believe in a personal deity, but I die on the day when my life ceases to be illumined by the steady radiance, renewed daily, of a, wonderful, of a wonder, the source of which is beyond all reason. What a gorgeous expression of what happens in AA for me. Uh, I was talking briefly before with a woman who's sponsoring somebody who uh, just went out. And uh, and and what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? For me, without the 10th step, there is no 12th step. There just isn't. You know, and that's that has been my experience as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of my favorite people in AA was a guy named Howard Cooper. He died with 22 years of sobriety. He was an incredible guy, and he was a Skid Row bum, and a gentleman, a gentle gentleman. He was thrown out of the harbor lights in uh, L.A. a number of times. And I want to tell you, to get thrown out of Skid Row Harbor Lights, which is Salvation Army, you got to really be an overachiever. And um, Howard got sober, and uh, in his first year, he was uh, asked to go uh, do a 12-step call on a guy named Sullivan downtown in the Skid Row Hotel, and he went down with this other guy. And they talked to this guy, Sullivan, who subsequently, after that night, uh, drank himself to death. Ten years later, Howard was about 11 years sober at a meeting, and a guy walked up to him after the meeting and said, um, you've saved my life. And Howard said... I, You know, I, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And the guy said, well, remember this guy, Sullivan? And he described him, and Howard said, yeah, he, he, he died. And the guy said, I was hiding under the bed the night that you 12-stepped Sullivan, and I heard every word that you said, and I never had another drink. You, you just you just don't know what you're doing when you do it. You just don't know, you know. Um, one night, Howard was in my home group. He uh, went to drive to Vegas at night. He got out on a night on the in the desert, and the cop pulls him over first thing. He says, his son of a And he gets pulled over, and this cop walks up to the car and says, uh, are you a friend of Bill's? Howard says, yeah, what do you mean? Cops said, well, I saw your bumper sticker. He says, I'm a friend of Bill's school. I like to have a little fellowship at the beginning of my shift. So I, I just want to... <laughs> I hung out for a while, you know. There was this uh, great guy, a member of my home group, another guy who died sober with over 20 years of sobriety, and his name was uh, Bill. He, called him, he was an English guy. I called him Bill of London. And I'll tell you this story, because uh, he loved this story. It's his favorite story, and it's one of my favorite stories about newcomers. This old guy had a 12-step call, and he grabbed the guy with just a couple of weeks to go with him. And they got in the car, drove out to the country, hit a dirt road, out the dirt road, out into the boonies, and they get to where the guy is, and it's not even a house. It's a lean-to with no door. It's got like a burlap flap. And they go in, and there's this helpless, sick drunk in just wearing underwear, stained underwear, on a stained mattress with nothing on it, and a little candle in a can flickering, and he's sucking on a bottle of wine. And the new guy looks at this guy, and he says, look, I'm new here. I don't know that much about this thing. But one thing I know for sure, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to lose all this. And I, I... I, I thought it was like this is one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life, and a guy, you know, you know, probably went, yeah, he's right, I, you know. <laughs> down to my last can here. Right? <laughs> without without ten, there's no twelve. This friend of mine in uh, L.A. was uh, <laughs> he was answering phones at the central office, and this woman called and said, uh, "How long is the waiting list for AA now?" And uh, he said, "What are you talking about?" She said, "Well, I told my old man he had to go to AA last week or get the hell out of the house." And when he called you, and he came back and he said, "They're full." And, um, but they put me on a waiting list. They're going to give us a call, you know, when something opens up. So I want to just know if the, the space is available now. And, uh, he said to her, I think you have a long way. I think it's going to be a long way. Um, I'm resentful of the men I sponsor quite often. And if I didn't sit down and write, <sighs> you know that guy, Jay, I told you about the guy with the book before, uh, about a year and a half ago, he, uh, the pain got so bad that he, uh, tied his neck to a something on the wall. Not, he couldn't find anything to hang himself from. And he sat down until he was dead. The pain had, was so unremitting and so horrifying, he couldn't bear it anymore, and he had to turn it off. I'm resentful at Jay for drinking and dying. It affects my self-esteem, ambition, and certainly personal relationships. What are the defects? Well, I'm self-centered, because part of me is saying, after all I've done for you, you know? I'm playing God. I was resentful at my father for dying. That's a terribly embarrassing thing to have on an inventory, but I was. One of my defects was playing God. I was deciding when people should live or die, and you know what another defect was was ungrateful. I had my father until i was twenty one i 've met a lot of people who have never had their father, never met their father, wished they had never met their father you know um, and and certainly not had him all that time. So I have found for me that this this process of the tenth step um has been the saving grace for me. I tell you, I, w- I would have stopped sponsoring a long time ago. And I certainly, I've had many resentments against my sponsors, and I've had to sit down and work the ten step and take a look at what I could do. But what if it doesn't go away? What if it doesn't go away? I'm ten years sober. I'm up to over 300 pounds. Can't weigh myself anymore because uh, my scale only goes up to 280, and I'm not willing to go down to a freight scale and, and weigh myself. And that's the only thing I could weigh myself on at, at that time. What am I going to do? I'm, I'm now flying all over the world to AA conferences. I can barely fit into an airplane seat. I'm about to ask for the airplane to the uh, seatbelt extension—a golden moment in anybody's life—and uh, and I'm 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 I have no sex life. I'm completely unavailable. I am the, the scariest, most awful walk to me in the world is the 20 feet from my seat to the podium to talk to thousands of members of Alcoholics Anonymous because I can't bear being seen. Am I doing good work in AA? Absolutely, no question about it. I stopped smoking and smokers anonymous. What does that have to do with sobriety? Absolutely nothing, unless you're going through with it. Unless you're going through it, it has absolutely nothing to do with sobriety, unless you're going through it. I want to stop smoking. I'm scared. It makes me scared all the time. Every ache I have, every pain I have, I immediately becomes brain cancer. I, I'm scared. I'm having a hard time it, and it starts to scare my children. I don't know what to do. I finally go to Smokers Anonymous. I want to be in Smokers Anonymous like I want to tap a ten-penny nail in my eye. All right. Now, one of the things I have done to make amends to my wife is I have gone to great extremes to make sure that I am never in a position of compromising myself with any with women, with women in AA or outside of AA. And it has nothing to do with anybody but me, but I put my, I was so off in this area, I have just made sure that I don't, I don't sponsor women, this is, you know, I don't, I just don't do that stuff. I have great friends, great relationships, and I just make sure it's in a certain framework. One night after I spoke, this woman came up to me and she, we had a talk. I don't know why, it just seemed like the right thing to do, we had a talk. And afterwards, she had t- came back to me subsequently and said, "You know, you saved my life that night." Of course, I had, you know, I saved her life, like I ch- say, Jay's life. I, I, no power, at all, but that's what she said. Now, this is the reason why I mentioned it. I finally go to Smokers Anonymous, and I'm terrified. I'm terrified because I finally have something that's working in my life. I have asked to be relieved of drinking, and you know what I am? I'm not only relieved of it. I'm helping other people. My family's getting better. We're making a new beginning. It's working. How am I going to ask God for this other thing? How am I going to ask Him for a thing if I and I see guys all the time to stop and smoke, and they start and stop. Him. What if I go to God and I ask Him to remove the cigarettes, and He doesn't? I'm going to drink again. It's all a house of cards. It's going to come tumbling down. And it's starting to feel like self-help. Let me do this. Let me do that. I like to lose 10 pounds. I want my hair to be a heavy, descending hairline. I want, you know, what do I want to do? It's starting to feel off. And so I go to Smokers Anonymous meeting, and the woman who told me that I saved her life is taking a cake, or whatever they give you, a carton, whatever they give you, <laughs> uh, for a year a year off cigarette, cigarettes, and she gets an opponent, and she says, you know what? People in AA who still smoke work shitty programs. So I do a Yosemite Sam. My brain blows up, you know, and I go home, and I'm nuts. I'm psycho. And I sit down, I do the test step. I'm of her for saying this, is this. the defect cat, and I'm saying, so I didn't help you. I didn't help you, right? I work a crappy program. I couldn't possibly have saved your life. <laughs> Thank God I said this to myself, right? <clears throat> and when the dust cleared and I got right with God and I got right with my sponsor, what came out in the wash? She was wrong. She was wrong. My life was being illumined by a source beyond my comprehension. That I could ask God to lift my cigarette smoking, to lift my eating, to lift whatever I wanted, and if it didn't happen, I didn't have to drink. One had absolutely nothing to do with the other. I quoted this the other night. It's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. I heard a guy say the, uh, the line that it's all the same disease was started by someone, by a recovery home that only had one van, which I, I, I love that. Um, <clears throat> so you know what? I, was asked, I, I asked God to take away the cigarettes, and my God said, work the program. I took a service commitment, and I, I got relieved of it. So I'm 10 years sober and I'm over 300 pounds and I'm talking all over the place and I'm writing. I'm writing. I'm writing like a maniac. I'm an example at Scott for being fat. affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, first relations, and sex. What are the defects of character that if God would remove, the resentment would be gone? I'm a glutton. No, don't, don't fight me on this. I'm a glutton. I'm, I'm self-serving. I'm not letting anybody feed me. I'm taking care of the whole thing. I'm not letting anything else nourish me. Not my wife, not my career, not my art, not my God. I'm taking it. Okay? Low self-esteem, stubborn. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. People pleasing, mind reading. I think everybody's thinking about my weight you guys don't even have time to think about anything but yourself. By and large, I mean, I know I have precious little time besides me. And <clears throat> I write it, I read it, I go out and have a pie and bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> What's wrong? What's wrong? I'm writing it, I'm reading it, I'm doing it. Writing, reading, doing. <laughs> My sponsor said, you know what? You're going to have to go back to the first five propositions in the book. Remember when we talked about section seven before? You're going to have to go to the first five propositions in the book. You're not doing this successfully. What does the, what does the book say in the section of section seven? It says, we go over the first five propositions, And we say, am I I ready? Have I properly worked the first five propositions? And now I can say, in this area, in this specific area, what am I leaving out? Where's the chink in the armor? Is it step one? Am I not really admitting I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable in this area? Is it step two? Do I not believe that God can restore me to sanity in this area? Father, I know you can keep Saturn on its axis, but you can't order lunch for me. Is, is it step three? Am I not really asking for the removal of this? What does it say on the bottom of, I believe it's 63, 62 actually? He is, he's the agent. He's the director. He's the father. I'm going to be the kid. I'm going to take that direction from him. Like the section on step 11. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for an intuitive thought. I'm going to pause. I'm going to take a breath. I'd ask for help with my mouth's full. Um, or is it step four? Do I actually have to do more inventory? What does it say in step five? Have I kept, it says the newcomer has kept facts about themselves, which... Later i made the whole thing collapse. So have I not admitted everything? So I take the first five propositions of the book and I apply it to the specific problem that keeps recurring over and over and over again to me. If it's sex, if it's smoking, if it's, if it's uh, my weight, whatever it is. And my, 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 my program started becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. My enjoyment and my pleasure uh, and, and the delight I was taking in those first three steps, my appreciation of them became broader and broader and broader. Because 10, with these nagging problems particularly, I once heard someone say the God seems to use what we want most to rope us in, um, kept sending me back to the first five propositions in the book. And again, it's all got to be utilized through 12. All got to be utilized through 12. Otherwise, it's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. I'm not, I'm breaking the deal of the third step. Take away my difficulties and victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of love. And um, great stuff started happened for me. So I say, Father, what you know? the last question on page 69. The right answers will come if I want them. What should I do? So I would like to go to OA. No. Um, what should I do? And I keep on asking. And uh, the message to me was to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I kept saying no, you know, no. So finally, I'm now up past 300. I'm now in that state. I'm now I'm becoming further and wa- further away from my wife. I'm becoming more and more afraid of my relationship with my kids because I don't feel like I'm really going to be around very long. And it's affecting me at work. Really impacting me at work. So I go to Overeaters Anonymous, which made my first AA meeting look like Studio 54. <laughs> Now, I am in the Mahjong game of my deepest nightmare. I am now, and was it really like that? No, it wasn't. But this is my perception. I'm, I'm dead. It's over. It's done. And I go there with so much spiritual pride. So I was putrid. You know, uh, I'm a circuit speaker. Yes, and a very fat circuit speaker, by the way. <laughs> but thanks. We're very glad you're here. Would you like me to speak? No. And if you take a look, it's a very powerful chapter, the chapter on on Step 2 and the 12 and 12. Very, very powerful. And so applicable to the repetition of problems through Step 10. What does it say? It says, it talks about clergy coming to AA. And it talks about, and again, you know the book, our book always says to us, don't fight with them. Don't fight with them. When the clergy comes, say, you're you're a clergyman. You're a smarty-pets. You know all about God. God forbid that I should tell you anything about God. I'm not going to say that. But you happen to be yellow in color. You're dying. And you have an enlarged liver. So I'm not going to teach you about God because you can quote the the Bible chapter and verse. I can't even touch you on that. But I have a way. All I have is a spiritual tool to bring to bear the grace of God in this drinking problem to break the cycle of spree and remorse. That's all I can teach you. And you're right about everything else. And that's the way I went to OA. I went full of this spiritual pride. And they never fought with me. They said, you're right. Oh, we'll buy your tapes. Oh, we love you. (laughs) And... It wasn't for a long time until I humbled myself. And I want to tell you, man, if I could only orchestrate my own humility, I'd be a much happier guy. I, I have never been able to orchestrate my own humility. And you know what? <clears throat> I can't understand anything I'm judging. I can't. The minute I start judging something, I don't understand it. I can't appreciate it. It doesn't, it's, it's, it becomes paper mache. It's something less than human. And I didn't understand what I was doing spiritually because I was judging it. And it only was, and it, it's what Bill said. <clears throat> they've got alcoholism. Alcoholism will school them. Alcoholism, if they stay here, if they continue to not drink, it will make them pliant. And I reached out, and I, I really started getting help. I really started getting help, and I really started taking direction. <coughs> I uh, <clears throat> grew up with a brother who, uh, when I, my brother stopped talking to me uh, sometime before I got sober, and one of the great things I was looking forward to uh, when in my recovery was making amends to my brother and being reunited with him. And uh, I, I, um, uh, contacted him and I was just uh, so anxious to try to contact him and become part of his life again and he uh, I, I made the amends he wouldn't answer my calls and I wrote him a letter saying I was sorry and he sent me back a letter uh, that said if you live to be a million and you were sorry every day of your life you wouldn't even come close and my sponsor God bless him said to me uh, I read it to him I read him the letter and my sponsor said rip it up rip it up right now and I said why and he said because you might reread it you know if you're feeling good about yourself say hey let me get that letter let's put an end to this crap right now Think you're a nice guy, get the letter. <laughs> what a beautiful, what a kind thing. What a kind thing to tell me to do, and, what a, and I did it, you know? And uh, I had done my job. I didn't even have to write another resentment about it. I, I was fine. And then time went on, and then the kids would graduate high school. Or the kids would get bar mitzvah, And I'd get an ouch, and I'd have to sit down, and I'd write. And all of a sudden, in the defective the character list, ungrateful comes up. And why does ungrateful come up? Because <clears throat> I'll tell you why. If you have this piece of paper, if you go to the second page, it says, wake up. Wake up! Somebody was, and I were talking before about self-centeredness, and she was saying this wonderful thing to me about taking a look at self-centeredness and realizing, what's in it for me? What looks good here? What looks good? Wake up. I want. If I want to change, I must wake up. I have been asleep. I'm seeing this problem in a cloud. I am letting it go below the horizon so that it does not present itself as a real problem. The food problem goes below the horizon. The drink problem goes below the horizon. The sexual problem goes below the horizon. Whole new thing. Bill and the guys couldn't even thought of it. Cybersex, brand new. I remember a couple of years ago, the first time I got to say to a man, he read me a sexual limit I said go home, pray, don't touch your mouse. First time I ever got a chance to say that. It's just amazing how this thing works in every area. <clears throat> no newcomer should have a high speed connection. None, believe me. <laughs> When I see it clearly, it will not be precious to me because I'm seeing something of value in here. I keep returning to it. <clears throat> I cannot live this way knowing that this is wrong and continuing to do it. I must tell the truth about what I am doing to myself, to my sponsor, right? I have been willing to complain about it and to go on doing it. I'm <laughs> I like that lady a lot. I must take it from a complaint to a real piece of business. Make it a real problem. I must stand before it naked, make a surrender, take an inventory, make some kind of demonstration. For me, the demonstration predicated, especially if there's a repeat of examining the first five propositions and saying, what do I have to do? Is it step one? Do I have to admit I'm powerless? How can I demonstrate that? What kind of action will do that? Maybe going away will crush my ass up so bad. It'll help me really take step one. Is it step two? Do I have to expand my prayer life? Do I have to seek other spiritual help? People talk about outside help in AA. And I want to tell you something. If I am going to therapy for a specific problem, if I am listening to spiritual tapes, as a result of my six and seventh step, it is not outside help for me. If I am doing anything instead of AA, it's outside help. And so far, thank God for me, in 16 years, I've never done anything instead of AA. It's always been in concert of, and I've done what you guys do. Take a commitment, do the commitment. Hang out with the guy, hang out with the guy. Love the guy. That's the message. But if I'm doing it instead of AA, it is truly, for me, truly outside uh, help, and eventually might even take me outside, way outside. But I have gone to therapy because of 6 and 7. I have gone to other 12-step programs because of 6 and 7. Some people say AA should do it all. I disagree with that. uh, Can AA do it all? Of course. Can AA do it all for that person? Of course. Should it do it all? I think it can and does if you perceive it all as a result of the work. And that's what it's been like for me, and it's been great. It's a, it's a kind of freedom and a kind of peace. And I have had, I've gone to a therapist, I went to one therapist, uh, Nancy and I went, and the therapist just, uh, suggested that I go on uh, medication. And I said, you know what? That's actually not what I came here for. And um, he said, well, I think that if you took the medication reduced your anxiety, that you would have, uh, be able to cure the problem. And I said, well, I, for me, the anxiety is the problem. And if I get rid of that, I'm not going to deal with the problem. And that was the right thing to do for me. I, have, uh, I sponsor people who are, on, who are heavily medicated, who have severe mental problems, who if they didn't take medication, um, would be in really bad shape. I, I tend to not be able to sponsor people who are taking uh drugs that affect the, n- the central nervous system, uh Valianthorazine, those zine drugs. Um the uh, the uh the other uh, uh, school of drugs and again I have no I have absolutely no malpractice insurance at all. So I I I have no idea what the right or wrong thing is to do, but it's been my experience that uh people who are taking antipsychotic drugs and drugs that uh, affect the uh, the adrenal system I've had very productive relationships, and this is just me. Again, no indictment of what anything anybody else does. I've sponsored guys who have gotten on medication, in sobriety, thank God, and I've uh, sponsored guys who have gotten off everything. You know, so who knows? Um, So, boy, I talk myself in a bubble. Give me a hint. Huh? Ten? Thank you. Wake up. (laughs) This is not a small deal. I do not want to live like this. I am a grown person. I have been unconscious. I have been slipping into this behavior. I have been acting without explanation. I must ask God to help me keep this thing on a conscious level. I must elevate it in my conscience and see it as a real problem. Prayer is a measure of whether or not I'm in the game. Dear God, direct my will to what you would have me do. And that has been such an incredibly powerful tool for me. And what my sponsor and I have done is is try to find new ways to keep the things that are very troublesome to me on a conscious and real level so that I can apply the spiritual principles to them. And um I uh my sons were all over my inventory and I uh had done some stuff that was just just miserable, just really, really bad stuff. I really had injured my sons tremendously. When Michael was six months old, um, I was hung over and he was laying it's a six-month baby. A lot of six-month-old babies are babies that do a lot of springing with their legs. They can't walk out. Sometimes they can't crawl, so they spring. And he pushed off my body, threw himself onto the floor, landed face first on a telephone, which was a rotary phone, turned his head, and the hook on the phone slipped right under his eye. And I don't know if I would have reacted to it any differently, but I'll tell you what happened. Instead of carefully seeing what was happening with the baby and looking at him, I picked him up, and it ripped the flesh under his eye. Now, the reason why I say that to you is because I never thought I was going to get over this as long as I lived. I didn't tell anybody what had happened. I took him to the hospital, and blood was streaming down his face, and my wife was there, and I said he fell off the bed, and he cut his eye. Now, would it have happened if I wasn't, uh, wasn't hungover if I was just napping, as parents do? It could have been. It could have happened. Would I have made that mistake in terms of picking him up had I not been hungover? Possible. Possible. But that's not what happened. What happened was I was hungover. I was the drunken, worthless piece of crap dad. That's what happened. And this was gonna bore a hole in my head until the day I died. And the doctor said when they because then he had to have general anesthetic, six month old baby gotta put the IV in his foot. You know, and um, and they had to because they gotta knock the baby out because the baby can't sit still for stitches. To me. It might have to you. You might have looked at my son and saw absolutely nothing. I saw a scar. I saw scars plainly and I saw it every day. Every day that I wasn't too drunk to see it, I saw it. And it was just an emblem of my absolute collapse of being a father. Just, just an absolute piece of crap, you know. I was the source of agony and pain and disfigurement for my children. And this went on my inventory. This went on my, I was resentful at myself for hurting Micah. I was resentful. You know what? It happened on my watch. And um, I uh, I wrote about it. I prayed about it. And <clears throat> I want to tell you what happened to me. I, uh, <clears throat> When my son was five years old, Micah, uh, he came to me and he said, Dad, is there anything such as God? We were living in this Christian family, and the, and the kid in that family had talked about God a lot. And he said, is there anything such as God? And I looked into the eyes of my perfect five-year-old baby boy, and I said, no. I said, no. I told a little baby, in essence, you know when it's dark at night, you see and you can't go to sleep? Tough, because that's all there is. That's really what I told him, in so many words. And I lied to him. It's not true. And I did exactly antithetical to what I thought I was doing. I thought I was giving him the real deal, the real existential deal, what every five-year-old needs, the real existential deal. They crave that. That's why Fisher-Price has so much existential toys on the market, right? <laughs> Schmuck. <clears throat> <laughs> I thought I was giving him the real deal, saving him so he wouldn't have to be played like a sap and a like those people out there. And what the big book of AA says, and if you're new here, please read the fourth chapter of our book, because it talks about it so much more eloquently than I'll ever be able to. It says this is the weakest, mushiest, most pathetic thinking of all. It is exactly the opposite of that. If you, if you can stand in the presence of all this immutable law and say that there is no rhyme or reason to it, and it says something beautiful. It says you've already got what's necessary for sobriety. You've already got what's necessary for faith. You have been incredibly faithful and had tremendous faith in people, places, and things, in drugs, and alcohol, and all that stuff. And all we're going to do is put to work this incredible, incredible resource you have and turn it with some spiritual tools to having faith. The, the, the evidence of your faith will come real to you. You know. When we drew closer to him, he revealed himself to me. And that's the 10th step for me. That's how I draw closer to him, through 10, 11, and 12. You know, And um, when I first got sober, uh, my first guy I sponsored was a guy named Roland. And because I did the 10th step, which made me a good sponsor, and because I worked the 12th step, Roland used to call us every night. Every night, he'd call. Every single night, and he'd leave a message on my answering machine, and he'd say, Scott, it's Roly I'm sober. I love you. Good night. And he'd hang up. I still sponsor this guy today. And Mike had told me five years later, when I was six years sober, he came to me and he said, you know, Daddy, when I was a little boy, I couldn't fall asleep until I heard Roland's voice on the machine. And once I heard Roland's voice on the machine, I knew it was safe to go to sleep, and I went to sleep. I told him there was no God, and you guys came over the message machine, and you talked to him in every night. His relationship with Roland is indescribable. They just adore each other. You don't even know what you're doing when you're doing it. Just like Howard and Sullivan, you know? Just like that guy under the bed. Didn't even know... It. Roland had no idea, and Mike had told me this during a period of time where Roland felt that he had not had any impact on anybody in AA. I said, oh, really? Let me tell you this. And um, <clears throat> I, uh, I had all these resentments, you know, I had this thing with Micah's Eye with all of this stuff, and I, uh, I was just crippled by it, just crushed, just deflated the ego at death. And I didn't know what to do. And my sponsor just said, do your job, do your job in AA. So I started doing the right stuff. I got to do a lot of lame crap. I got to, like, spend some booze bucks to, you know, to buy him a baseball mitt spend some dope dollars to, like, you know, register him in the Little League. I start going to Little League games, flag football games. Lame, 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 lame. I go to my first baseball game, Little League game. Nancy comes over and sees everyone in the stands and me in the sun alone, pissed off. Just psycho, you know, going up and down two hat sizes in the sun. I'm here, I'm doing my job, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. The kids are thrilled to see me, you know. Mr. Redmond's going to blow up. Look, um, <laughs> it took me a couple of years for the voices to diminish in volume and number to go and sit down in the stands with the people, to just be a guy at my sobriety station in the stands. <sighs> and I did it for a couple of years, and my son Jesse received what I believe is one of the greatest compliments any human being can receive. He was intentionally walked. Which, if you're not a baseball fan, it means they're scared of you and they want to get to the weenie behind you. Uh, and, uh, he didn't want to be a geek and jump up and down, you gotta be cool, so he just put the bat down, you know, and you gotta, and, and, he, and, uh, and trotted up the first baseline, and on the way up the first baseline, he looked at me and just flashed me just a little bit of stuff, just a little bit, it's the old man, you don't want to spoil him, don't be lame. And, uh, and I could have missed the whole thing. I could have missed the whole thing by a second in an inch. And I'm not telling you that Jesse got, uh, intentionally walked because I'm sober. I told you, I, I was at my surprise station because I'm sober. That's what happened. And I've told enough guys who have been drunk on their kid's birthday again about the day my kid got lost. i got to go into school now, and i got to sit down with the teachers and do the horrible, embarrassing thing and say, my kids are sick. They've been sick as they've been living with me. I've been terribly ill. Can you help us? Not once has any t- anybody ever said, no, no, we won't help you. Every single time, they said, every single time. You know, if you're new here, you're going to hear a lot of people talking about helping you. If you don't let us help you, you're probably not going to be willing to help anybody else. That's just been my experience. Give us a break. We're pathetic. We need to help you. Let us help you. Please. Um, when Michael was born, we were surrounded by friends and family. I had a ton of phone calls and a lot of flowers. And when Jesse was born, two years and nine months later, nobody came to the hospital. Nobody called us. Jesse went up in incubator. He was sick. Nancy was alone. So alone that they almost put out a psych alert on her because she was all alone. Nobody came to visit. Our family couldn't even come. Nobody could come. It hurt too much to be around us. The ice around our heart had become so thick it had repelled everybody. And a doctor calls me that night. Michael was two. Jesse was brand new. Says, said, Mr. Redman, you got to come down here. Your wife is having a breakdown. The baby's sick. I said, look, I can't. My kids, I can't find anybody to watch my two-year-old son. She said, i tell you what. I'll give you my phone number, and you can take your son, my husband's home. This a doctor in a huge hospital in L.A. Take your son to my house, my husband going to watch, so you can come down. And I said, no. I said, no. There was no way for me to accept her generosity. And now my son, my poor son's stuck in the house with this psycho. You know, I could I would have done better to take him down and leave him alone in the waiting room with a coloring book. At least he could have gotten away from me for a while, you know. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the guys I sponsor, and I still sponsor him because I work at 10-step, but he has pissed me off plenty, called me up and he said they were having the second baby, and uh, he said, will you watch my son so we can go down and have the baby? And I got to take care of his kids so he could go down and have his new baby, and Jesse took care of the baby with me. Jesse, who I couldn't go and visit at the hospital, he got to take care of this two-and-a-half-year-old boy with me, <laughs> and and it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so uh, the teachers tested the boys, and they tested special. They needed a lot of help, and I had to continue doing 10 steps because I was still embarrassed. I was embarrassed of what the teachers saw to me, although everybody was very kind to me, um, and I was also very jealous uh, and very scared when I would go into the school and saw other families that seemed okay. It was very embarrassing to me. I felt just horrible about myself, a lot of resentments against myself. And um, the teacher said, get him in the sports, which we did. We did the flag football thing and all of that stuff. And, 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 uh, and they said, get him in the music because it'll help with the small motor stuff. So uh, Jesse wanted to play drums. So I, I went down, I, I took some booze bucks and spent like $12 on, on a drum pad. It's a piece of wood with a piece of rubber and two sticks. Very simple apparatus. He wanted it. I did the right thing. I went to my home group. I told him I had done the right thing because I'm supposed to do that. That's what I'm supposed to do. I was really proud of myself. And within two weeks, the AA drum set showed up at the house. There were like a lot of burnout drummers in my group at that time. So they're, they're like guys coming up with these mega death drums going, dude, and uh lay them on. Jesse went up with this drum set. You couldn't see him when he sat behind it. This little tiny voices coming by. And I'm serious. It's humongous. And the same thing happened with Mike and his instruments, uh, keyboards and stuff. And uh, a couple of years ago, my sons played the House of Blues. They played the House of Blues in LA, and they burnt the dump down. Burn it down. And uh they play to this packed house. They're playing hip-hop music. The kids are standing elbow to elbow. The place is just flipping out. And there's this group of weeping middle-aged alcoholics standing over to the side. <laughs> and, and like the kids are going, what is with the crying old people? What is that all about? Usually they bring backup singers, but there's these weeping old people who look like they've been around the block a little bit. So uh, That's their AA and Al-Anon uh, aunts and uncles uh, who have been following them around for 16 years. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, my son Micah, was babysitting for a, a couple in the program and the guy said to him, uh, what do you think of uh of your father of hearing your father speaking and hey, said, I don't really think anything about it. I don't go to I'm not a member, and I he said, All I can tell you is that since I'm a very, very little boy, the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al Anon have taken very, very good care of me, and never once has any of them demanded that I believe what they believe. What an incredible thing. What an extraordinary compliment. What a what an amazing testament to uh to attraction rather than promotion. And that that was a statement made. That was a compliment to you guys made based on his experience as a member of an AA Al-Anon family. And I will just tell you that it's been a war of attrition for me that a couple of years ago, I looked at my son's name on my, ten, on my A-step list. I looked at it, and I crossed him out. I knew I was done. I knew I was done, that I was current, and I could move forward. I will tell you now that when I look at my son's eye, I don't see that scar. I don't. And that was a scar that was never going to go away, and my father was never going to come back into my life. Uh, i want to tell a little story about my brother and then we'll take our last break. I, um uh, I, this, this resentment against my brother would come back, uh, uh, now and again when, when, especially when milestones would get hit in my, my kid's lives, cause he's missing the whole thing, he's missing the whole thing, you know, and uh, so I, uh, the, the defect of ungrateful came up, and I realized that I should be grateful that I don't have to talk to the guy. This is a very troubled guy. It might not be a lot of fun to be talking to him. Plus, it might really be awful for my kids to have to talk to him. He might be just really in bad shape. So I started feeling grateful to not have to talk to him. Then it came back again after, like, the boys graduated high school, things were going on, and I had an incredible spiritual experience with it. I thought, and I thought this thing because I've seen, have you ever seen people in AA, good sponsor, good guy, can't get along? Good gal, good sponsor, don't get along. They're still good gals, good guys, good sponsors, but they don't get along. They're not right for each other. It's been a good fit. It would be injurious for them to stay together. They're going to move on, and they're going to do good work elsewhere, Right? Why can't I apply that to my brother? Why can't I imagine? What's blocking me from this is my egomania, because I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of guys who'd love to be my brother. A lot of guys, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. And don't you forget it. What if it is so injurious to my brother to have contact to me, with me, that it is a blessing for him to not have to talk to me? What about that? How about that as an expression of ingratitude, that I could be grateful for him that he's strong enough to not talk to me? But he should like me. But I'm nice. Forget about all that. That's my defects. That's self-centeredness. That's playing God. That's greed. What if it is so injurious to him to be in contact with me that it is really great for him to not talk to me? What a tough thing for me to admit. What a tough thing for me to take in. And it really has worked. It's really worked splendidly. Now, guys, we're going to have one more break. If you can make it back here, you're you're better people than I am. And um, uh, we'll take at least 10 minutes, and then we'll drive this sucker home. We'll finish off with some 10-step work and some 11-step work. This is it folks. Hit me with the serenity prayer. God. Is Kara still here? What time does the game start? What? Four thirty? will try to get out of here by four thirty. <laughs> uh nothing like a little people pleasing. <clears throat> well I had the chance I want to uh thank uh Ava L and the uh, Bagels and Big Book group for uh Putting this whole thing together, a lot of hard work, a lot of, a lot of arrangements, a lot of stuff, a lot of abuse a woman's taken. She's uh, wonderful, and I want to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come and hang out with my friends and uh, and thank you guys. Uh, I want to address myself to some of the questions, and then uh, we'll get into our session. Other than your wife, do you, uh, do you communicate a resentment with someone you have one with? I, I uh, again, the, the thing I try to do, really try to do, is this whole notion. On the top of page 67, of when someone offended, I said to myself, and again, I love that, I said to myself loud enough, not loud enough so that they could hear me, uh, to, to myself. What I try to do, uh, my, my sponsor Paul always used to say that he felt this, the secret to life was good communication, that it was a, an element of everything, that going to somebody and telling them I have a resentment, I've never seen that put me in a situation where we were going to have an open and honest conversation. If I could tell you how I feel without telling you what to do, that's always been my goal. Because then I'm 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 doing it without blame and it's been really, really incredibly helpful to me. Um, please expand on and explain the feeling that resentment is the essence of alcoholism. I don't think well, it's the essence of alcoholism in that it's the centerpiece. It is uh, it's, it's described in the Big Book of A.A. as the source of all spiritual illness, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. And the thing that is so elusive to me about resentment is the, the the architecture of it. I'm resentful at you. I'm also resentful at me. I'm resentful at me. I'm resentful at you. I'm resentful at your school. I'm resentful at your government. I'm resentful at your race. I'm resentful at your religion. And that's why I think they said people, institutions, and principles have the power to actually kill, actually take me out of my own life and lay me down. Um, great question. What is a tweaker? Uh, it's a speedhead basically what it is. I had to find out after I heard somebody identifies a tweaker what it was, uh, and it's, uh, it's somebody who likes to be peppy. Please tell us more about how you came to terms with your Nazi resentment. I uh, was doing my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had had <coughs> these resentments against the Nazis, and I had uh, done the kind of work that I explained to you that I did. I had to put these awful defects of character down. Just, just awful. You see, a normal person, somebody who was is non-alcoholic, might do something I've seen people do in the past that I was incapable of doing. They would have not liked Nazis. They would have made uh, contributions to political organizations that fought Nazism. They would do whatever they could to not be hypocrites and repeat the same behavior. They would have acted like members of society. I never could do that. I didn't do that. So once I put it down on paper, I started acting like a member of society. I started contributing money, spending some booze bucks on when I was called by fundraisers to support the political parties I believed in. I started discussing that with my sons. Um, I went on a 12-step call one night it's a guy with a heavy German accent. Now, I walk in, I sit down with this guy, and he's like, he's loaded, and he's cooked, and he's going on and on. And he says to me, you don't understand, I can't get sober uh, because I fought in the Second World War. I said, well, I, you know, i I'm be very glad to help you. I, I know plenty of guys who you know, fought in wars, Vietnam veterans, and they've gotten sober. And he said, uh, you don't understand, I, I was in Hitler's army. And I looked the guy in the eye, and I said, well, I'm Jewish. And a lot of my family was killed in World War II, and I love you. And this thing is for you. It's for you. And, and, I, and, and I'll, I'll show you, I'll do whatever I can do to help you. And then he said, he finally said, no, you don't understand, I'm, I'm, I can't get sober, I'm European. I mean, the next thing is I can't get sober, I'm Martian. the, the, the you know, I mean, so who won the argument? Me. Because I got to look in the eyes of another man and not lie. I knew that I was free. I knew that I examined my own stuff enough to look into his eyes. Now, have I had nightmares about that stuff? Do I have hard feelings about that stuff? Does it still come up? Absolutely. No question about it. You know? No one's ready to have, you know, I'm not ready to have people kiss the hem of my you know gown. I'm not, you know, it's, uh, um, I can honestly say I haven't had it right about it in a long time. I had the incredible experience of speaking at an AA conference in Thailand uh a year or so ago. And there were about 170 people there, not more than ten people from one country. There were people there from Beijing, from the People's Republic of China, from Laos, Cambodia, Bali. Um, there were uh, Irishmen and English people and, and a lot of Germans and a lot of Swedes and they all spoke enough English for us to get along. The one Irish guy was great. He identified his name was Sean. No, really. And uh he uh he said he didn't identify as an alcoholic he said my name's Sean and I've been overserved which I just <laughs> I, yeah, I just uh, I thought it was great. And um, and I shared, uh, how I used the test step to, uh, get over this thing with Nazis. And this guy end in the meeting, walked up to me, and he said, my name's, and I'm German, and I just love you to pieces. And we threw each other, our arms around each other, and, and uh, I, uh, subsequently, uh, wound, I sw- wound up sponsoring a guy named Manfred, and, uh, we used to kid around, I'd say to him, uh, I'll let you know when you finish with your men's. Uh, uh, and I mean, just to, be, just to be able to make that joke was, and, and it so happens that he was abused during the war. He, he, but, but it was just interesting. I, I sponsored two guys uh, uh, named Manfred and Klaus, which, you know, for me when I came in, it just wasn't on the list of stuff that was going to be possible for me. So that's some of the stuff that's happened uh, with that resentment. Uh, one other thing I want to mention when I'm in the midst of this, again, another uh, uh, gift of the 10 step. My sons, uh, I live with psychos. I mean, uh, I, I met Nancy, uh, I got her on the rebound from a Marxist commune in, in Michigan. They're, they're just nuts. Um, her sons are. She's like the head communist. Son, my sons are commies. Uh, Micah, uh, in, after high school, went down to Chiapas, Mexico, and worked with the Zabatista revolutionaries. Um, <laughs> uh, Jesse went to Nicaragua to build houses. I mean, that, you know, like their politics or not, they're out there. They're doing it. I smoked a lot of dope and talked a lot of long crap and never got out of the living room. You know, he's down there. He's down there doing it. He's doing it. So anyway, when they were 12, the boys had a lot of feelings and a lot of opinions, and their grandparents were over. The right-wing Republicans. It was not a good time to start talking. You know, it's just, it just—it was a bad idea. You know, I had known years ago. Um, let's keep it light and polite and just move on. But the boys are boys. You know, young, tw- 10, 12 years old. So they're fighting. They're arguing. They're arguing. My kids are smart. They're really smart and they're hard to argue with. My grand—my my father-in-law can't get over on them. And you know, and then he pulls the plug. He does that thing. That thing. It's—it's it's a terrible bullying tactic. He looks at both of them and says, "You know, I used to feel the way you feel, but when you get older, you won't feel that way anymore. You can't argue with that." There's no way to, and I saw a pin get put in my kids. I saw them just go like this. And I waited until their grandparents left, and I said, boss, come inside, I want to talk to you. And I came inside, and I sat down on the bed, and I looked at him, and I said, listen to me, your grandfather's a very sweet man, but he was scared and he lied to you. And the lie he said to you was that he knows what's going to happen to you. I said, I not only feel the same way, basically, my basic politics that I felt when I was your age, I feel it more now. Not only that, I might be able to put some money where my mouth is. could never do that before. And I saw my sons just go Oh, oh, what an incredible thing. What a wonderful thing. But again, didn't have to teach my in-laws a lesson. I had already written about that, gotten it, rid of that, and then written about what a lousy piece of crap I was and got to be of some help to my sons. Um, when uh, Michael was in uh, Chiapas, uh, he was uh, a member of something called the Peace Camps, which is installations of Westerners which are sent out to indigenous villages to bear witness to make sure that they're not abused by the Mexican military. So he's throwing himself in between Indians and the military. The Mexican military, which is depicted as a very loving, caring group of people, um, uh, is, they don't want my kid there. So I'm having, having—I'm these fears are coming up. I'm, I'm like, I'm really having a tough time because I'm having pictures. It's like a bad movie, man. It's just like a, a really bad, awful B film, you know, about what's happening to my kid. So I call my sponsor and I say, I'm frightened of the Mexican military. <clears throat> please remove, please pop, remove my fear of the Mexican military. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. And what what happened was, he said, give it to me, give it to me. Come on. Give it to me. Take the third step. Let the third step inform the tenth step. Let it inform it. Where where are the the chinks in the armor? Where is it? How can I go back to the first five propositions? Come on, let me have it. Let me have it. I know you can keep Saturn on its axis. I know you keep all the subatomic particles moving around the nuclear area of the universe. I don't think you're going to help my kid out here. I don't think you... And I would say, okay, I'm powerless over the Mexican military. Take him. Take my kid. You got it. And I move on with the business of life. And it would come back and nail me. Appropriate. Kind of appropriate. And one day... I couldn't tell. It just It didn't work. It didn't work. And I got Paul on the phone, and I told him, I said, I was weeping. I was so scared of what was going to happen to my son. And he said to me something so beautiful. Again, he didn't argue with me. He didn't try to talk me out of being scared. He didn't. He said, boy, it sounds so hard to me. He said, just imagine this. What if this is the greatest thing that ever happens to him? Wow. What an incredible thing. And I said, kiss my ass. (laughs) Easy for you to say. Not your kid. I said this to myself, but I said it. And and you know what? I don't know if it's the greatest thing that will ever happen to him, but, man, it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to him. He came back from that experience a man, fully cut cloth, you know? I sent him to the hardware store, his mother would say, can you go do that? I said, well, he's been to Chiapas. Maybe he can handle Ash. Let's see. Let's see. Um, and, uh again, incredible gift of, of, uh, of Step 10. Um, I'm not going to be able to get to all these, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Um uh, how to step stuff to delo- delo- work out with those who suffer from uh, serious mental illness, major depression, manic depression, schizophrenia. It's been my, uh, 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 my experience that, again, once we straighten out spiritually, uh, uh, we, we get, well, spiritually, we straighten out mentally and physically. And I have, uh, I have known people with serious, serious mental problems that, as a result of working on their alcoholism, uh, the dribble-down has been tremendous impact. I mean, I'm a man who people used to try to uh, uh, medicate, and that, that has not come. I remember I went to one psychiatrist, and he took notes while I was talking to him, and at the end of the session, he said, I'd like to put you on some medication. And I said to him, you know, actually, I'm okay on drugs. I, I got plenty of drugs. I didn't come in for drugs, I came here for something else. And I, didn't, I really didn't require them at that time. It has been my experience, and there's a lot of controversy about this in AA, that that is an outside interest. I find that it dovetails gorgeously with every illness, every malady that I've seen. I also think that a lot of people have come to AA and found out they're not alcoholics. Uh, I, I don't know how this applies to the specific question answer, but my answer to you is is that every time I have taken, uh, again, don't perceive these things on uh, uh, as outside issues, okay? I'm resentful at myself for taking medication. I'm resentful at people in AA for judging me for taking medication. I'm resentful at one specific person who told me I wasn't sober for taking medication. If you start that examination, I bet you something happens. I bet you something happens. I don't know what will happen. Maybe you'll take more medication. Maybe you'll stop taking it completely. Maybe you'll go to a group where people don't have that kind of stuff. Because every group has its own tradition. I personally try to respect the tradition of any group I go to. Because all groups are autonomous. I don't know if that's uh, helpful at all. Um let me see if there's anything else I can get to now. Uh, you talked about the twelve-step programs of therapy as not being a substitute for AA. Would that be the same as switching one meeting for another, or doing outside help in addition to AA, uh, getting outside? I, again, I don't perceive that getting help is as outside as long as it's a result of me working my sixth and seventh step. I have had to change my home group three times in 16 years. Uh, At ten years of sobriety, I had to move on with sponsorship. Uh, uh, My sponsor and I had very bad communication and we had uh, reached a point where uh, uh, we weren't being helpful to each other and I had to move on. And as a result, I had to leave my home group because it really would have been injurious to me and I think to him if I had stayed there. I went to another group and my sponsor then started attending that group and my new sponsor said. The first time you had to do it because it was a response to the inventory process. If you leave this one, you're running. <laughs> and I had to take a look at that. And he uh, his direction to me was beautiful. He said, go to the meeting. Be yourself. As a matter of fact, be yourself more than usual, <laughs> which I really liked. To really go and be deliberate and really thoughtful about doing the things I normally did in that group. Keeping a commitment, doing what I was doing. You know, and letting the other stuff go. Letting it happen the way that it was going to happen. So for me, and uh, I... um also then i start uh, we started another home group which wound up being uh because we had a format that, that did not adhere to the traditions the group wound up eating itself up uh, every time there was a group conscience uh, decisions were made on the stand of one vote it was majority rules and the meeting Changed as a result of teetering back and forth every business meeting, and the meeting just wound up getting ground to bits, so me and a bunch of guys moved on started another meeting and started one that really kind of adhered to the uh, the, the principles of the traditions and the principles of gso and the uh, and the concepts you know which uh, uh, talks about the minority voice being being heard i <clears throat> 'm um, sorry that i can 't get to all of these they're really really great great questions. <clears throat> I have a sponsor named phil he 's a really great guy and um, when he was uh, uh, in his first year or so, a couple of years of sobriety, he came to me and he said, Scott, I'm dating a woman for a couple of months, and uh she's pregnant, and I think I want to have the baby with her and, and get married. What do you think? I love that. Um, sometimes sponsoring certain people is kind of like sponsoring a copy of People magazine. Uh, 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 all you get is headlines. You don't get any story. You get, uh, I, I swear this happened. I had a guy call me and say, hi, I'm getting divorced. And I said, from who? Who I had? I had no idea the guy had been married. Absolutely none at all. It's just it's headlines, and that's okay. <laughs> um, as I told you, I love reasons to drink, and one of my favorites I've ever heard in my life happened. To this guy, I was sponsoring this guy for about 15 minutes, and he uh, he lived with his wife. He was a, a male prostitute, and he had a gay lover. And he called me to tell me he drank, and I said, "Oh, why?" <laughs> and he said, "I caught my wife cheating on me." And um, now I understand that absolutely and completely. I understand that absolutely completely. That was the product of one of two processes. That was either the product, that was either the occasional hunter inspiration, he just, he had to come up with some and there it was, a polished jewel, fully cut cloth, boom, a pearl. She was cheating on me. Or that was the product of weeks in the hamster cage weeks in the rat's maze. Weeks of cutting and pasting reality, of turning the whole world. You've got to turn the whole world so it slips in slot by slot. I know. I live with my wife. I'm a hooker with a beeper. i got to get loving, but the bitch cheated on me. I'm out of here. you got to move the whole universe. you got to cut and paste in reality and get it all to facilitate the alcoholism. you got to rearrange your whole life to accommodate the alcoholism. And I understand this. And the only person that I can see or change it in, as page 67 says, is me. So Phil comes to me. Now, you know I have, an, I have a feeling about this. I have a feeling about it. But I have, I have made my mind up to not play God. And I said, I took a breath. I don't know, I don't know that I would have said this to anybody but Phil. And I said to him, you know what? If you want to have an abortion and you don't have the money, I'll lend you the money and drive you over there. And if you want to get married and have the baby, I'll show up and be the best man at the way. And, uh, Phil had been a real broken guy. He'd come into uh, AA sleeping on his uh, drug dealers. Uh, floor. He, he was just a great guy, and our home group just loved him. And they were so excited about that he was getting married, and they were excited about the baby. And, and uh, the guys were just invested in this family, really excited about it. And, and the uh, time and place came, and they were having a home birth, and the baby was born, and the baby was very sick, very, very sick. She was just rushed to the hospital in time for her life to be saved. Um, they, she had to be placed on an ECMO machine, which, if you know anything about it, is just one of the most invasive, terrible things that can happen to an infant. They, they actually have to go into the body, separate the aorta from the heart, Move the blood, get oxygenated, and move it back into the body. The lungs won't and they have to. And you hope that the lungs will start responding while the baby's still alive. I mean, it's few it, as as bad as it can get in in at that time. And he he came back to the group. The twelfth tradition that night was for him. The guys threw seven hundred dollars in the basket. He's a working Joe, you know. He can't take a week off from work. He's a working guy. And we went down and gave him the go down there, you know. And um and uh you have to be uh. I remember the family to go to neonatal intensive care. I know because my baby was in neonatal intensive care and there was nobody to visit my baby in neonatal intensive care except for me and my wife when I finally came down. But the AA army showed up, you know, for Phil's daughter, you know. So, you know, the, their aunts and uncles are showing up and, you know, really big black men and tiny, <laughs> tiny Japanese women, overweight Jewish guys, everybody. And, and like after a couple of days the nurses are going, yeah, you're a, yeah, sure, you're a cousin, go. They didn't want to hear the lies anymore. They just kept sending everybody in. Um <laughs> And, uh, uh, she needed blood. She needed a lot of blood. And the call went out for blood and everybody shows up. First of all, half of us can't give blood because we're either ex-hypes or we've just gotten our nose tattooed five minutes ago. And you can't give, you know, you can't give blood if you have a fresh tattoo or if you're a hype. So, but, and they were pissed off they won't take our blood. How dare they? Now, I'm here in ten steps, they won't take my blood. So, <laughs> the baby's in the hospital for 16 days. She's home two weeks already and the hospital calls Phil and says, they, they keep coming and giving blood. I mean, you might want to call these people. They're dropping it off in jars. I mean, it's like, it's, uh, it's ridiculous already. And then I got this wonderful gift from my friend Phil a year after that. He pulled me aside and he said, you know what, I really have to tell you something. When you told me that that night, I didn't believe you. I didn't believe you when you told me you'd do either one for me. He said, but you know what, you were at the hospital every day the baby was sick. And I believe you. I believe you because you showed me. What an incredible thing for a guy who couldn't show up the night that his father died. What an incredible thing for a guy who who couldn't go to the hospital to help a sick family. And it's because I kept it on deck. It's because I kept it informed by step 10. For me, that's the way it worked, you know? I, um, I reached a point with, um, my first sponsor it was really interesting, an extraordinary guy, and we reached this impasse in, uh, in our relationship, uh, where, and we, we both, we, we were bringing bad communication skills to the table, and we couldn't have an open and honest discussion, or, or a good separation. So I don't know how to separate, uh, left to my own devices. I can leave the village when it's been raised, when it's an ashtray. If the cattle are poisoned, everyone's pillaged, everything's stolen, the huts are burnt, I can say, bye. Uh, but I, I don't I don't know how to, I, I left to my own devices, I don't know how to fight well. I don't know how to do that. And he and I had a terrible separation, as odious a separation I've ever had. And when, uh, in the aftermath of this, one of the things that it taught me was to look to the quality of separation I'm having in my life, to have an open and honest conversation, to discuss it in an open and honest way. What a gift. What an incredible gift. You know? And... Having a successful separation doesn't mean that everyone's happy. You know? That doesn't, isn't necessarily part of the deal. I can have a successful separation if I've been open and honest, haven't been a retaliator, done it in a useful, purposeful way for me. And I want to tell you something. I've had to separate 20 times from every sponsor that I've worked with long term. I have to separate the newcomer and accept the member of AA that they're becoming. I have to accept the fact that they're becoming a sponsor and not beat them up and think that they need my tutelage all the time. You know? Very often, you know, I used to hear this when I was new. My first thought is the wrong thought. Well, I want to tell you something. That's not true for me anymore. Quite often, my first thought is the right thought. The, the occasional hunter inspiration becomes a working part of the mind. I, You know, if I'm self, I'm screwed. The first no thought is the right thought. But if I'm okay, if I'm doing my work, if I'm staying on top of it, quite often the first thought will be the right thought. And um, and uh and I've had to have many separations from my wife and many separations from my sons. I've had to separate from the toddler and see to have a relationship with the little boy. I've had to separate from the little boy and have a relationship with the teenager. Um, my, uh, Last birthday, I was 49. I know. I don't don't look it. And uh, I uh, was going to say something. And my son Jesse said, you know, Dad, you're always talking. Let me say something. So he he made a toast to me. And he said to me, you make me excited about life. Wow. What an extraordinary thing. What an incredible thing. I talked uh, down in a place called Greenville, Mississippi. Big shul down there. And I, uh, (laughs) uh, and the guy, my host in Greenville, Mississippi, was a really interesting guy. Uh, and what had happened in his community was uh, the civil rights movement it failed. It just didn't work. And um, integration failed. Uh, they integrated the schools down there, and uh, there was white flight from the schools. Then a lot of the white people voted the money away from the public schools and went to private schools, impoverished the public school system, which was all African American. And it, it just it was a mess, an absolute mess. And uh, this guy who was my... Uh, host down there said to me, you know, he was a child of the 60s, he grew up with that consciousness and it had failed. And the first time he walked into AA in Greenville, Mississippi, he saw African-American and Caucasian people hugging and kissing each other and putting their hands out and helping each other out. And he saw the exact thing he had wished for his whole life. And that's what happened to that that member of the Aryan Brotherhood I told you about who who asked me what to bring to my kid's bar mitzvah. That's what happened with Roland, who was tucking my kid in every night. And um, I started writing resentments against my sponsor. And writing resentments against my sponsor, which I felt tremendously guilty about. He, He was an incredible guy Incredible guy. He had held the Torah at both of my kids' bar mitzvahs. He was my best friend. He was the best friend I ever had. And we'd had this lousy separation. And I kept saying, "Armistendful at at blank through." For putting me down to reject, you know, it affects my and the defects and the defects over and over again. And I would read them to the, my other sponsor, Paul. I read them and I read them and I'd read them. And I'm like, what do I do instead? I'm going over the first five propositions in the book. That's not working. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why. Why am I not getting relief? What is it? And I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know if it's sex, if it's money, if it's food. I don't know what, if you have no plague in sobriety, that's fine. If you do, I don't know what it is, but I know the answer for me is in the steps. I didn't know what key to turn. And Paul finally said, I said, what am I, he said, you've done everything except forgive You haven't forgiven them. Now I don't think that forgiveness is my job. I think that's—I don't think that's right because as a member of AA, if I forgive you, that means I'm saying you're wrong. So I don't think that that's my job. I don't think that that's something I can do. I don't understand forgiveness. I don't understand pity. I don't understand empathy. I never understood pity my whole life. I'd look and I go, "Yeah, I feel sorry for you, you poor schmuck." I don't get—I don't understand pity. I think pity is condescension. I think pity is, is platforming yourself on some, it's some lofty place where you can dispense pity. I don't understand that it's empathy, that it's love, that it's me feeling for you. You know, what a beautiful thing to, to feel love for a, 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 you know, my wife knows many uh, men and women in Al-Anon who live with active alcoholism, you know, and thank God that some people can love a dying thing. That doesn't make them stupid. It makes them who they are. That's their experience. Thank God we can love a dying thing. Thank God we can love someone who can't stop drinking. What does it say in our book? God has either taken their, their desire to drink away or not. It's not what you're doing to me, you know. And sometimes, you know, I'm positive this is why God made more than one of us. I can help a guy, you can't help. You can help a guy, I can't help. You know, I know it. I know that I can look into the eyes because I've had the opportunity to look in the eyes of someone who has been drunk on the day that their father died and say, I know this is for you too. One of the things that used to drive me crazy when I came to AA, one of the most painful things for me is that at times I hear people get to podiums and say, I just had a kid, and thank God they've never seen me drunk. And, man, I'm telling you, my skin would just crawl because my kids had seen me drunk plenty. And I had hurt them plenty. And the thing I didn't get is that there was no premium on that. That's just their story. That's not better than people who have seen me drunk. I've seen some of the worst parenting I've ever seen in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. Just because you're sober doesn't mean you're going to be a good parent. I've seen some of the most boneheaded stuff I've ever seen, drunk and sober. You know? So uh, I had to understand that that person, you know what? Maybe they couldn't help a guy who's coming and saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've been hurtful to my kids. But I can sit down with that guy and look him in the eyes and say, you know? And my kids carry the message. They've been carrying the message for years. Uh, uh, one day, I, Jesse was about five, six years old, and I had this new guy in the house. So I go to the bathroom, I come out, and Jesse's looking at the guy goes, what step you uh, on? guy goes, four, four. I said, he's six. You don't even have to answer him, really, if you don't want to. Um, my favorite thing he ever did, though, is a guy came to do his fist step one night. He came back the next night. Jesse's doing his homework, and without looking up, he went, what's the matter? Blew it? Got to do it again? And um, <laughs> my sponsor gave me a tape and a copy of a piece of non-conference approved literature called *The Sermon on the Mount* by M. Fox. And in the back, and there's two uh, incredibly powerful sections of the book for me. Many, many powerful sections of the book. Two of the most powerful are: he's got a section on Sermon on the Mount* where he breaks it down and comments on it. And then he's got a copy in the back of the book where he goes over the Lord's Prayer line by line, and he has a chapter on each line. And in the chapter, in the section on the Lord's on the Sermon on the Mount, he discusses a section of a. Of, uh, The Sermon on the Mount was called Resist Not Evil. And, man, it is the description. You can really see where Bill and Bob and these guys, where a lot of the framework of AA came. It's the expression, the perfect expression of one day at a time. He says, stop making oaths. Stop doing it. Stop making pronouncements. Stop making declarations. Stop resisting evil. Stop trying to keep it away. Stay in today. Right now. Right there. Right in between that clap. Wake up. That's what you got to do. And he, and he go, I mean, he's outrageous. He's a Christian man, and he says stuff that I know a lot of people were not, were very grouchy about. He says that any religion that asks its, uh, its clergy to take lifelong oaths is missing the point. Wow, what a thing for a minister to say! What an incredible thing to say! This friend of mine in AA, who he talks about. He's a great guy. He uh, was brought up Catholic, and um, he, has, uh, his uh, sister became a nun. So he figured when he was a little kid that Jesus was his uncle because uh, she had married uh, Jesus. So I, I, I got a kick that out of that. But, um, <laughs> um, and the other really powerful thing to me which my sponsor took me to was um, the section on forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us in, uh, in the back of the book and thats uh, I've given you a copy of that uh, if you go to page 171 which is the second uh, flip over on the bottom of the uh, uh, bottom of the first paragraph on page 171 it makes reference to something it's basically putting forward to you the following notion if you're not forgiving people, how can you continue to say this prayer? It's said at most AA meetings, how, in God's name, if you are not forgiving people, if you're holding a grudge, how can you continue to mouth the words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? So, he writes, should you now attempt to repeat it without forgiving, it can safely be predicted that you will not be able to finish it. If he was if he was a little more New York, I think he would have said, It should, you should choke on it. You wouldn't. Um, this great central clause will stick in your throat. Now, if we turn to uh, page 173, which is the flip, <clears throat> it, it says uh, on the bottom again of the second paragraph, if you cannot forgive at the present, you will have to wait for your demonstration until you can. And you will have to postpone finishing your recital of the Lord's Prayer too, or involve yourself in the position that you do not desire the forgiveness of God. Because if you're not forgiving them, then you obviously don't want the forgiveness of God yourself. You are abdicating your right to forgiveness. Now, I, too, as I said, I needed to not be on my 8th step list, and a lot of people needed to be on their 8th step list. And um, I, I should tell it just because I like telling it any time I talk. The best reading of Step 8 I've ever heard in my life came from a guy. I, I heard this guy. It was very early in my sobriety. I was a couple weeks sober. I was at my old home group, and it was a guy named Nino. He had a heavy New York accent, and he had never read Chapter 5 before. He was there with a hospital group. He had hospital plastic on his wrist, never read Chapter 5, was reading it for the first time, and he got up to Step 8, and he read, made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ! And he looked out into the room as if to say, have you seen this? Do you know what's in here? It it was so beautiful. It was the purest reading of the Step I've ever heard in my life. Because it's the only thing I saw. I didn't see anything on the list. I, I just, no, not those people, not that money. I would not have taken that much money if I knew I had to give it back. No way. Think I'm stupid? (laughs) Not the car. Um, So when I say forgiveness, our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm not forgiving myself. I'm asking God to dispense forgiveness. The only person it seems that I can dispense forgiveness to is this other person. And that doesn't mean I'm right and I'm wrong. The opposite. uh, The 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 opposite of that is is not. I'm still a grudge holder. Anyway. Flip the page, page 175. He talks about in the preceding material, he says that you are spiritually linked to anything you're resentful to. You are connected to it with a fastening that is stronger than steel. You cannot imprison somebody in the prison of resentment without being the jailer. You cannot have a jail without a jailer. And if you're a jailer, Baba Ram Dass, who's an old acid head who I just think is adorable, I really love him, was teaching meditation in a jail. And he said to the uh, prisoners of this jail, he said, if you learn meditation, the only people here who will be in prison will be the guards. Which is just true. And so, so true in terms of what I'm talking about right now. So you have placed yourself to be in jail and completely connected to the person that you're resentful towards. So... The method of forgiving is this, 2nd paragraph, 175. Get by yourself and become quiet. Repeat any prayer or treatment that appeals to you, or read a chapter of the Bible or the big book or anything else. Then quietly say to yourself, I fully and freely forgive X, mentioning the offender's name, I loose him and let him go. I completely forgive the whole business in question. As far as I am concerned, it is finished forever. I cast the burden of resentment upon the God within me. He is now free. I am free too. I wish him well in every phase of his life. That incident is finished. The truth has set us both free. I thank God. Then get up and go about your business. On no account, repeat this act of forgiveness, because you have done it once and for all. And you do it a second time. To do it a second time would be tacitly to repudiate your own work. Afterward, whenever the memory of the offender or the offense happens to come into your mind, bless the delinquent briefly and dismiss the thought. Do this however many times the thought may come back. After a few days it will return less and less. Now, I just want to tell you that I have had to do a lot of work before I got in a position to do this. I had to do a lot of 10 step work. And I found that going back to the first five propositions in the book, the times that it has not worked and I have not been relieved, I've had to take another spiritual leap. And that it was to forgive my sponsor. To make this act of forgiveness. I was so ground up, so willing to be rid of it. What's the message of the six and seven step? Pop, I'm done. Take show business. Take this, take the eating, take the sex, take this. I can't bear this anymore. I'm willing to do anything. Anything. But then I gotta do it. I gotta call before I do it. I gotta call before I pick up my mouse. I gotta call before I do that stuff. My wife talks about it in her story so beautifully about calling her sponsor and saying, I did it again. I did it again. I yelled at the boys again. I got it. And finally, the war of attrition got it starved it out, and that one day she got to call her sponsor and say. Ruby, I'm scared, I'm gonna yell at the kids. Boom! Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, I, I, I uh, uh, performed a, uh, an act of forgiveness with my sponsor and I, uh, I just can't tell you how much I love the guy, how highly I think of him, what a unbelievably powerful gift this has been, uh, for me, uh, to have, to be able, you know what? What a, what an awful thing to have a great relationship and then to have that relationship be informed and colored by the lousy, uh, the lousy, uh, separation. How many times in my life have I had an explosive separation from somebody who I thought was very close to me? And I thought, well, well what is this? Was this all a lie? Well, did we not really love each other? Did we not believe the things we said to each other? Was this not a great friendship? It can't be. It can't be because now it's, it's so ugly. It's so terrible. You know what? I don't buy it anymore. I don't want my bad separations to inform my life. Because I deal with some wacky people. I heard somebody at a meeting the other day say that they, um, they, when they make an amends, they ask the people they're making amends how they should make amends. Whoa. I've got to make some amends to some pretty crazy people. I certainly don't want them orchestrating the next couple of years of my life. I mean, I, uh, um, you know, I, I do that with my higher power and with my God. I might ask a couple of questions, but not for instruction, not like that. Um, uh, and uh, and and I have come to know, to find out, that some people have explosive psychologies. Some people, in certain situations, with certain factors come to bear, and they blow up. Their brain blows up. I become something less than human to them. It becomes okay, you know. I got to tell you, some people say things in email. That you would never say to a human being. I mean, it's like it's psycho. People say and do things in email that if they ever had to stand in the presence of somebody and look them in the eyes, they would never say it. Anonymity is not always a great thing. There's a, a certain there's a certain protection of an, in anonymity in expressing. That's why character assassination is such a, a lethal thing. <clears throat> um, so. This tool of forgiveness has been uh, incredibly powerful for me. I had another, uh, there were people who had been in my old AA family who, after I left my sponsor, became very angry at me. And they were very uh, open about it, very expressive about it. And they would, you know, people who would refuse to say hello to me and who would just snarl at me when they saw me. And I want to tell you, it was a great lesson for me because it really is awful to not be forgiven. It's really so awful to be on the business end of that kind of open expression of hostility. It's, and you know what, mea culpa, I've done it. I've done it many times. Uh, you know, I'm a snubber. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a, a glower, a snubber, and a starer, and, you know, I'm a bully, and, uh, it's bad behavior. It's, it's behavior that I don't benefit from, and certainly I don't know anybody does, and it was an incredible, uh, uh, lesson for me after having performed this act of forgiveness. So, what, what, uh, Emmett Fox suggests is that until you, if you're still, uh, not forgiving someone, you shouldn't say the prayer. Uh, that might be helpful to some people. It might be annoying, and and you might not feel, you know, uh, feel that a lot. I, since I learned this, I find it harder to say the prayer when I'm really holding on to something powerful against another person. Um, <clears throat> before I move on to kind of the last few comments I wanted to make, uh, I wanted to just, there were a couple of things that were unclear about the uh, inventory process that people were asking me about, which I just want to uh, get go through. And if there are any other uh, burning questions that people have in the house, I'd like to address them. But um, <clears throat> when I described. The resentment section, again, I I've described that you, you're asked to write twice. You're asked to write three columns of who I'm resentful at, why I'm resentful at them, and what it affects. Self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. I try when I write the cause to do two things. Number one, I try not to write a story. I'm going to tell the story when I read it. I'm resentful at my father for not playing with me when I was a kid. Okay? The story is more complicated. He, didn't, he was awkward physically. He didn't ever get me in a little league. There's a story to tell there that I might tell the guy I'm reading it to. But I want to make this doable. I want this inventory to be doable. I want the 10th step to be doable. I want the 12th step to be doable. I don't want to have to dot every I and cross every T. I don't think I'm going to wind up drunk, go to wherever I'm going to go, and God's going to say, you know, you forgot self-centered. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think I'm going to have an easier, more fluid time in Anonymous. Um And then, so I write the resentment, resentment number one. And I was resentful of my father for dying, for not playing with me as a kid, for not teaching me how to ask women how to dance, for being uptight sexually. That's five different resentments, and I like to write them each out I like to just clean out the cavity as much as I can. So that's resentment number one. Then defect the character list number one on a separate sheet of paper. A lot of people use the phrase, my part. I understand why they do, and it's nowhere in the big book of AA does it use the phrase, my part. My part was, I was a hosebag. I mean, my part was I was a lion cheating invertebrate. And uh, and I had a lot of parts. Like, I cheated, I stole. I find it, I can't really bring that stuff to God. What I can bring to God is, pop, please remove the self sentence. Turn my attention to what you had. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? So again, I'm not indicting anybody who does that. It's just not a tool that I use so I'm asked to write twice about resentments, once about fears. I am frightened of, and I write it every time I write a line out. I am frightened of dying. I am frightened of living. I am frightened of success. I am frightened of failure. And then the sexual inventory in that paragraph on page 62, I'm sorry, 69, uh, about the seven points with the people who are injured on the top. And I go through each situation. And you know what? Every time I had sex, someone wasn't injured. Sometimes just I was injured. Sometimes they were injured. Sometimes me and they were injured. Sometimes I couldn't remember the name. The woman with the red hair. The lady with the dog. The lady I thought was a lady. The uh, Hey, hey, hey. Um, and <laughs> after I put who, uh, was harmed, then I write about the seven points. So I, I hope, because I know that some of that was unclear to a few people. Are there any questions before we go out to some? Yeah. It says in the book we write about people, institutions, and principles. People, you know, institutions could be governments, banks, schools, the military, and principles can be the Christian work ethic is a principle. Homophobia is a principle. I mean what, you know, uh, racism is. And I have resentments against Others, and I have resentments against myself. The resentments against myself for me are just as powerful, in some ways more powerful. Now, I had, I am not <clears throat> a suicide guy. I'm a homicide guy. I vastly prefer your death to mine. I always have. Uh, and uh, you go first. And I'm not knocking the suicide people. This is not an indictment of the suicide people. It's kind of the flip side of the same thing. I just, my whole thing has been, Scott Redman kills wife, kills kids, refuses to commit suicide. That's always the, uh, <laughs> that's the headline I've always seen. Um, so a lot of people really need to be on the raised up list. A lot of people have much more resentments against themselves than other people. I had a lot against myself, but I hated you way more than I hated me. Way, way more. Is that helpful? Okay. You know, a lot of people do that, which I think is great. I, I, the question was, do I do the other comms? Do I take a look at the defects of character that feed fears when I do a fear inventory? And uh, I don't. I know a lot of people do, which I think is really a great thing. Um, the... Uh, And again, anything anybody's doing is okay with me. I personally don't do it. I just write the fear out and then do six and seven, which I described before. Please remove this fear, turn my attention to what you would have me be. I humbly rely upon you. But I know what you're talking about doing the other columns with the fears, which I think is great. Anybody else? Yeah. Could you say it again? I can't hear you. I've done a lot of them. You know, I've done a lot of them and I've stood in the, uh, there was a guy at work, uh, who I, Uh, miserably mistreated behind his back and I ran into him out in the open world and I stood in his presence and I said to myself it is absolutely and it just hit me it's absolutely inappropriate for you to tell this guy what you did behind his back he doesn't know and it didn't hurt his career and it would really you know I've had uh, people come to me in AA meetings and say you know I used to really hate you but now I like you (laughs) thanks you know it's like somebody saying you know I I, I was having sex with your wife a long time and I'm not anymore (laughs) I I feel better now Um, and what happened was I stood in this presence and I realized that I, I shouldn't say anything. It, and it washed over me and I felt it go away. So that was an in-person amends, a direct amends where I've had to sit down with people and say, I'm so sorry for what I've done, um, have been only successful if, if I'm, it's really funny, after I did this work with my sponsor that I told you about, the forgiveness work, I spent a year of my life knowing that I owed him an amends. And I couldn't put, I knew that talking to him, he did not want to talk to me. And that it would be injurious and self centered for me to talk to him. So I knew I had to write a letter, and I knew that if I put that letter back in the the mail, needing any response, I was cooked. I was dead meat. And it took me 12 months before I was able to say a prayer, put it in the mailbox, and, and let it go. It was absolutely extraordinary. I have had, as I described, you know, my brother told me if you're alive every day for a million years, it won't be enough. Um, it says in our book so beautifully. It says that the mo- when in a situation where we have been injured more than the other person, where they've been more injurious to us, we find these amends to be the most fulfilling, the most remarkable. But and also again, step ten, that if if the uh, uh, the amends is not successful in that, if it if it runs afoul again, then I can readdress it in 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 the tenth step. And, and the tenth step not only brings me back through one through five, but it gives me an opportunity to do eight and nine. Is there an amends available? You know, is, is there something necessary that I need to do? I hope that's helpful. Did everybody hear that? The question was, when I write resemblance, do I list all the names out and then, uh, and then go and fill the other stuff in, or do I go straight across? Uh, this addresses a wonderful, uh, question, uh, in, uh, in the pile. I don't know if I can find it, but basically the question says, will you ever ha- will you, can you ever stop doing this work? <laughs> um, it's something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but I really loved it. And, uh, about some about not wanting to do the work. And the reason why I bring this question up now is, I do it any way I can, any way I can. There were times when I worked on my fourth step where I'd, I'd write 25 resentful flat, 25 names, I'd write them all out, but then I'd get so far behind on the defective character list it would seem like an impossible task. And I'd say, okay, I learned that lesson. Then I'd go straight across. Sometimes I would write one resentment and get so sick from it, I'd walk away from it, I couldn't even look at it again. Somebody was talking to me earlier about having done an inventory and walked away from it for a period of time and, uh, and thinking, do I have to redo it now? And I said, my, I don't know what the guy should do, but I know for me, is, why would you have to redo it? Why can't, you've already done this work. Why not take advantage of it? Um, th- sometimes I find I write a resentment uh, straight across and it informs my fear list. Sometimes I have found that I'm writing a resentment about a sexual thing that is really going to be better examined in the sexual inventory. I guess what I'm saying is, is that I find all three sections of the inventory feeding each other, feeding off each other. And that for me, I want to, uh, that mostly I write out, at this point my, my ten steps are rarely rarely more than four or five items. Two, three, four, or five items. If I really hit the skids and I'm really in bad shape, it might appear, a longer document might, might appear. So I have found it to be any way I can. And it's been very helpful to me. Yes. Yeah. And again, I mean, that's pretty much what I've been talking about in terms of ten. That sometimes a prayer for me is trying to wish it away. I cannot will these things away any more out than alcohol. I gotta do the ten step. I gotta address it as my spiritual. What do I have to do? I'm willing to do anything. Maybe I have to stop going to the meeting. Maybe that's it. Who knows? I don't know. My, you know, my voice said stay away from animals. Maybe, or as my, Paul said to me, maybe I have to go to the meeting and be myself more than usual. I don't know what the answer is. But the other part about it is, a lot of times now, when I'm approached with that kind of vitriol, number one, it shakes me up. It's very scary to me to be met with that kind of hostility. It really shakes me up. At this point, if I've really done my work, I'm going to be able to look at that person and say, oh, you poor baby. You poor baby. This must be so terrible to be consumed by this. It's terrible. You've put me in jail, and you're the jailer. You know? So... Uh, the question was, uh, does, do you have to make amends just for the stuff you done before sobriety or the stuff you a- do after sobriety? You don't ever have to make amends for anything you did after you got sober. I'm, 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 I'm uh, And by the way, I'm not trying to make a joke at your expense. It's just, uh, I'm, I'm just kidding you. I, I, uh, um, I ha- uh, uh, when I was 10 days sober, I was given a job directing a television commercial in the West Texas desert. I was 10 days sober, uh, and the uh, meeting I was going to for 10 days, I said, I'll be ba- gone for 10 days, and I'll be back. And they said, where are you going? And I said, down to the Rio Grande River. And they went... Oh, I said to direct a commercial, and they went, "Oh, sure." They thought I was muling for a cartel, you know. And I went down there and went. I went ten days somewhere, uh, and I had a panic in the desert. I created more wreckage in those ten days. Half my fourth step, half my eighth step list was composed of the incredibly boneheaded stuff I did. So, um, I have. Uh, it's really enriched my sobriety and made my life bigger and bigger because I've made those amends. we we'll to take a couple more. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand the question. Where it says, where have I harmed others? Where? Right, the where I put whom have we hurt, that's why I put whom I we hurt at the top of the page, in the sexual inventory. Uh huh. No, I mean, that's my inventory. I mean, people who I've heard, it says in the end of chapter five, if you made an inventory, you already have a list of people you've harmed. So I had a list of harm harmed as a result of all the stuff I've done I've done on my inventory. And then I've got the people I've harmed on my, uh, on my sexual inventory. And then I found that, yeah, there are people who didn't appear on my inventory who I have harmed, and they wound up on my eight-step list. And again, I think it's great that those people do that. It's just not something that, it's not a tool that I use, but it sounds like a great tool. I'm going to take one more, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Yeah. The question is, is how did the resentment against the Nazis or my aunt uh, impact each one of those five things? Um, My resentment against the Nazis for slaughtering Jews expected my self-esteem because it really made me feel different and apart from other people. Pocket book because I had this uh, guilt about being a Jew, about Jews being uh, um, accused of uh, being moneylenders. I came from a very poor family, so uh, it was real weird for me. Uh, Ambition. My ambition was to be part of the world, feeling okay. I I felt very bizarre that I was part. I was shown these horrific films in Hebrew school as a kid with no explanation. And uh, um, uh, personal relationships, it affected my personal relationships with Germans, with, uh, with people who, uh, who weren't Jewish. And it affected me sexually because there was a lot of shame, a lot of stuff about being less than, of not being as robust as non-Jewish people in a way. So that's how that touched on that. And the way it affected all uh, those five things with my aunt is certainly my self-esteem. I felt awful. Uh, pocketbook, uh because I had in my uh, course of action with my aunt over the years, I got back at her financially. I did some stuff. She bought me some gifts. I was particularly appreciative of it, so there was a money thing involved. Self-esteem pocketbook. Ambition. My ambition was to be a guy who didn't, you know, who wasn't helpless, who could take care of himself. And that was impacted by uh, the event. Uh, personal relations, certainly with her, and sexually, because I felt castrated by it. Wouldn't that be a great last line for a workshop? And I felt castrated by it. <laughs> if you're new here, welcome to AA. Our problem mainly rests in our mind. That's the good news and the bad news. It's the good news and the bad news. Alcoholics Anonymous is the only, only treatment From a fatal illness where the text includes the sentence, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. There's no book about cholera that says cholera's a hoot. You'll love cholera. It's fabulous. You'll meet people who have cholera. You'll love it. You'll meet people who just caught cholera. It doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) Alcoholics Anonymous is the only treatment from a fatal illness that actually leaves the sufferer in better condition than they were in before they got the the disease. And the bad news is is our problem mainly rests in our mind. If the problem didn't really rest in our mind, this would have been a two-sentence workshop. It would have been, you're not drinking, have a good day. We wouldn't have had anything to discuss today. But the problem mainly rests in our mind. I'll tell one story, it's one of my favorite stories, and then I'm going to leave you guys. Uh, some years ago, um, my wife was walking through our bedroom, and she knew I was talking to a new guy, and she heard me saying to the phone, let's say the aliens are coming. So she stopped short. She ain't missing a second of this. I said, look, I the aliens might be coming. That's an outside interest. I have no opinion on it. I have one question. Why you? Why have they come for you? Why have they traversed the universe for your sorry ass? Why have they come for you? You're two weeks old, you have no life. Why? And plus, he's sleeping with a Bible on his chest to ward them off. So they're going to traverse the galaxy, walk into his room, and go, oh, no, the Bible, let's go home. (laughs) Years later, I was sharing this at my home group. I was sharing the story, and the guy who I was telling the story about walked into the room. So I'm looking at him. And as I'm telling the story, I saw the guy go like this. (laughs) Ha, ha, Oh, shit. So the horrible memory slide news is mine. So if you're new here and the aliens are coming for you, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home. I love you. Thank you so much.